Lord, we do agree with those prayers and do desire that you would use the circumstances that's going on all over the world to draw people to yourself, as Connie prayed. and Also, that believers would take advantage of an opportunity to uh, not only show that there's peace in you, that people may even see that, but also to be bold enough to share your gospel with those that might be open to hearing, and that we might, in fact, be lights in a, in a dark world. So we desire that you turn what the world is fearful of into good for your benefit, for your glory, and that we would even pray for revival, that there would be people that would come to know you in mass numbers pray all these things in Jesus' name. Well, this morning, let's get into the book of Romans once again. And I didn't expect to spend two weeks on Israel's privileges, but I think it's a good reminder. So go into uh, a little bit more on it today. Two verses, verses four and five. And basically, just a reminder, since we haven't met for two weeks, we've been looking at a new portion of the book of Romans almost stands alone, although there is a very close relationship between the first eight chapters where God provides righteousness and the connection is a question that would have arisen in the first century. If God's righteousness is by faith and faith alone and Jewish people are taught the importance of the law and it seems that Gentiles now can enter on the same basis as Jews. That raises the question, well, what about all of the promises? What about Jews as a special people of God? What about the covenants? What about all these issues? Well, I think chapters 9 through 11 answer that question and can almost stand independent because it deals with the nation of Israel specifically. And part of the care that we want to exercise in looking in this passage, we're talking about not the church, we're talking about the nation of Israel, and a lot of the passages, we're going to look at them, a lot of the passages are corporate, in other words, as a nation, in fact, he's going to make that distinction when we uh, get into the next passage after verse 5, beginning of verse 6, he's going to define for us this entity that we call Israel. In fact, there's two aspects to it. So, vindicating God's righteousness, because are these promises null? Did uh, the church replace Israel? And obviously the answer to both is absolutely not. There's still a relationship. We just happen to be in the middle of God's plan that is still working itself out, even though it's taken 2,000 years. So chapter 9, first 29 verses, he's going to talk more about the sovereignty of God in choosing. God can elect in whatever manner he desires. And I think we have some insight into God's election, at least in terms of the nation of Israel. And I think there's some principles that are there that are applicable to God's choice overall in general, in terms of believers in the church and in the church age. So we're going to spend some time talking about election again as we get into the passage. Not today. We're just in a kind of an introductory passage, verses 1 through 5. 
And then from 9, chapter 9, verse 30 to 10, the end of chapter 10, verse 21, he's going to explain what's going on with Israel today in this era. This is a different time frame. Nation of Israel has been set aside, not abandoned, not uh, given up on, not replaced, but in fact under some discipline. So God is righteous. He's going to be vindicated in terms of his righteousness, in terms of rejecting the nation of Israel. There's going to be two aspects to it that we'll get to when we get to that point. And because we're in the middle of a plan that God has that is far-reaching, Israel ultimately will be restored, and God will give attention to the nation of Israel, much like he did in the Old Testament, and it'll involve a future salvation, so a salvation of the nation. And keep in mind, it's corporate. Just as the nation rejected their Messiah, That doesn't mean that every single Jew rejected the Messiah. In fact, the church was predominantly Jewish at the very beginning. The 3,000 that were saved on the day of Pentecost, they were essentially all Jewish and or proselytes. Yet the nation, corporately, the leadership and the official position was that Jesus was not the Messiah. Similarly, when Israel is restored, there'll be individual Jewish people that still reject Messiah and will not bow down. But as a corporate unit and as a body of a nation, the nation's official approach will be that Jesus Christ of the first century was in fact Messiah. So that's their future. Chapter 11 focuses on that. So we're looking at the vindicating of God's righteousness. We can divide that up. I just looked at the past sovereign election of Israel and the little introductory passage, Paul's sorrow. He's vindicating or explaining. I'm using vindication to kind of follow the theme of the overall section. Describing the sorrow, we spent a week looking at it. And last week we started verses 4 through 5, which talks about Paul actually giving the reason or vindicating why he is so sorrowful, because the nation that he is a part of has, in fact, rejected their Messiah, and that nation has all of these promises, these covenants, all of these privileges that God has given, and they're missing out on the enjoyment of them. And in fact, when he writes, they're only a few years away, and I think Paul, not necessarily in this passage, but I think Paul anticipates discipline. And in 70 AD, the nation was essentially destroyed, city of Jerusalem destroyed, temple destroyed. So he's vindicating his sorrow in that he sees the great privileges and blessings that God has bestowed on Israel, and that generation, in fact, will not experience them. So they have special privileges, and we started looking at them, and just to kind of backtrack to the beginning of the sentence. Don't like to jump in the middle of a sentence. This is one long sentence. It starts in verse 3. And as you can see, there's no period till you get to the amen or forever there. And then another one at the end of amen there. One long sentence. And we looked at the passage. In fact, spent a lot of time looking at, I could wish that I myself were accursed. If it be possible, I think that's the essence of what Paul is saying. If it would be possible... If I could be a substitute for my nation, I take all of the condemnation. If 
it be possible for them to come into a relationship with Messiah, he would be willing. I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ. Obviously, this is impossible. He's already explained that in detail in chapter 8. Separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. In other words, for the benefit of my fellow Jews. And then he goes and explains who he's talking about. Brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, verse 4, who are Israelites. So he's going to deal, beginning in chapter 9 here, through chapter 11, with his kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. He's going to spell out who a true Jew actually is. And he's going to expand to whom belong the adoption. We looked at that last time. In fact, the word there, Adoption as sons, that's just one word. Adoption as sons, the identical word that we talked about in chapter 8, where we as believers in Christ have been adopted as sons. In fact, the word son is part of the word there. So it's just one word. We have a special relationship with God, but before we ever had that, God had already adopted out of the nations a people that he calls his own people. So this is something that God has bestowed on the the nation of Israel. And you could say it began in the Exodus, although it was anticipated and predicted even earlier. But during the Exodus, they became a united people, separated from sin You could view that as the salvation of the nation from bondage to slavery, from the birth of out of the womb of Egypt. They were adopted as sons. We looked at that last time. Then we talked about the glory. Uh, We spent some time there. I'm not going to go over it again. But lots of examples where this nation, from its very beginning, had an exposure and experience, visible, audible, experientially, the presence of God, where he manifested glory. Not his total glory, or everyone would be obliterated, but enough of the glory that people were able to see, sense, feel, hear the presence of God. No other nation had this privilege. Only the nation of Israel. No nation in history. And there were lots of examples in the wilderness. We saw that God led them in the wilderness with a cloud and a pillar of fire by night. So the wilderness experience, and there's many examples in the book of Exodus. I've given you probably the striking one in 13, 21 through 22. Sinai, the whole mountain rocked. The entire mountain was like on fire. Like an earthquake or a real earthquake occurred. So the people shook. In fact, they were prohibited from even touching the mountain. The glory of God was so evident. Uh, the key passage there, 24, Exodus 24, 15 through 18. And then God manifested himself in a visible way in the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle was built and dedicated in chapter 40, 34, 35, it was filled with the glory of God. A visible, experiential presence of God. No other people ever experienced this before. So God confirmed his presence. And then when the temple was built in the time of Solomon, 1 Kings 8, 
We have the dedication of that temple, and again, the glory is manifested in the temple, and it remained until it departed as a result of the decline and the idolatry of the nation. Ezekiel starts the sequence in chapter 10 of the glory of God departing from the Holy of Holies, departing from the temple, and eventually in chapter 11, departing from the Mount of Olives, never to return again until the glory veiled return in Jesus Christ. And this same glory, in fact, even more spectacular, will be displayed at the second coming. When Jesus returns, Matthew 24, 30, every eye shall see him. And this will include unbelievers as well. Every eye will see the glory of God. And if they're unbelievers, realize that they are totally doomed. The believers will of the church age will come with him. We will return in glory. And the believers that are on earth will be uh, taken into the millennial kingdom. And there's a passage also, Isaiah 4, 5, and 6, that sounds similar to some Old Testament passages in terms of manifestation of God's glory during the millennial kingdom. I think the context of Isaiah 4 is millennial. So there's going to be a display during the millennium of the glory of God. Remember, there's going to be a millennial temple. There'll be a millennial temple where God will manifest his presence. In fact, it might, in fact, it'll probably be more spectacular, more evident than it was in the Solomonic temple. Pardon me? Ezekiel's temple. Ezekiel's temple, yeah. In fact, that's a very glorious description. Yes, yeah. Israel will be prominent. That's one of the privileges. Israel will be prominent above all of the nations. David will reign on his throne. There's at least a couple of passages that indicate that. He will rule over Israel. Who will rule over David? The King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, will rule in the Millennial Kingdom. Some of you may have rulership or administrative roles as you are faithful as well. Pardon me? Just give me a broom. Just a broom? I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Oh, wow. Yep. Glorious time. That works. Privileges. Privileges of Israel. The church has not had the experience that Israel had in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the wilderness. The church has not experienced that. Now, we have an indwelling presence, but it's veiled, much like the glory was veiled in Jesus Christ. That's why when Paul says, when we go to be with him, we will be like him, and we will be revealed. We're not truly revealed right now. All we see is the old, dying, old nature. So the glory and the covenants. There's no other nation, and by the way, I don't even think the church has the the covenants that are given to them. Through access, through the promise, correct? The promise given to Abraham. We were going to argue about this, yes. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's a debated area, and I'm cool with that. I just yeah, trying to think here. But if you look at the parties to all of the covenants, the church is not a party to any of them, and particularly even the new one. 
right? The new covenant. Right. right. The question is, how much does the church benefit from Israel's covenant? Well, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Yes. Correct? Yes. Every spiritual blessing. But the covenants, Israel are the parties, obviously, with God to the covenant. So let's take a look at them. Well, it depends on how you define covenants, I guess. Uh, I've got a list of them here. Okay, yeah, exactly. We'll talk about it. Okay, so we have adoption deals with Israel is part of the family of God and always has been, and God does not throw people out of his family. So Israel still is part of the family of God. They're in the corner, you might say. They're in the disciplinary corner. I was reading yesterday, Psalm 94, and verse 14 says, For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he. Very good. Everybody hear that? What psalm is that? Psalm Psalm 94, 14. Okay. Psalm 94, 14. God will never abandon his people. Israel is part of the family of God. They're not going to lose that. They never have. They never will. They're under discipline, which is different. Just like... You discipline your children, you never cast them out. When they say adoption, it makes me think of being drafted in. It's not one of the same. No, no, no. The children of God, in terms of Israel, they're, it's a unique relationship. Then the glory, we talked about his immediate presence. The covenants, these are contracts. Think of them as contracts. And in the Bible, those that are identified, now some theologians include other others that are possible, but the ones that are clearly identified is the first one is the Noahic Covenant, which is unconditional. It's the one that Bill and Maddie were referring to. And this is before there's an Israel. So there's no Israel yet. And this one includes the parties are all of the descendants of Noah. But also, it's a covenant with the earth. It has a tie to the the natural realm as well. And scientifically, one of the points I make when I talk about biblical foundations, I think we are under the Noahic covenant today in terms of the natural realm. I think the natural realm was radically changed as a result of the Genesis flood, and God set up a natural realm with the laws and constants that we can experience today that are different from the laws and constants that existed before the flood. And I can point to some of the indicators even in the biblical text. But scientifically, you can even view these. For example, the whole geological column was not there down to the the pre-Cambrian layer. So all of geology is different after the flood than it was before. Another indicator from the biblical text, people lived 900, Adam lived 930 years. Something radically different in nature existed before the Genesis flood. When God instituted the Noahic covenant, he set up a different environment, you might say, or a different natural realm that uh, you can't go back and investigate what it was like other than what you have in in Scripture. So you can't evaluate it. So uniformitarianism is not a biblical doctrine. It's a false doctrine. 
uniformitarianism or the uniformity is a better way of describing it. The uniformity of nature, the stability of nature is based on the Noahic covenant. And you could look at, we won't look at them, but there's some passages in Jeremiah. This is later, way later in the biblical record and time in terms of at the end of Israel's history where there are references to the Noahic Covenant and God, in fact, chapter 33, I don't know, I can't remember the verse, about 36. You might look at that one up. Where God gives assurance, even though the nation of Israel is about to be destroyed as a nation because of their idolatry, and they will go into exile, God gives them an assurance in Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah is describing the destruction, and did you find it, Maddie? Yeah, it's uh, Jeremiah, yes, six, well, at least paragraph three. Go ahead, read it. Uh, and the word of the Lord came to my saying, have you not observed the two families were chose, uh, he has rejected. Thus they despise my people, no longer are. Thus the Lord says, if my covenant day and night... There you go. Covenant for day and night. That's that's Genesis... That's Genesis 9. And the fixed patterns of heaven and earth... See that? Fixed patterns of heaven and earth. These are some of the stipulations of the Noahic covenant. Right. I have not established, so if I didn't, then I reject the descendants of Jacob. Right? But he's saying, I haven't done that. Right. In other words, just as you're assured that the sun rises in the morning and sets in the evening, just as there's a winter and there's a summer, just as you can make calculations in terms of mathematical formulas, just as the orbits of the moon and planets and stars or galaxies and orbits of all material realm, just as those are fixed If they were not, in other words, my assurance that I will keep Israel is as sure as all of these natural events. Right, and the final uh, final sentence in the paragraph is, but I will store this and will have none. Okay, so there's a future restoration, not only after the Babylonian captivity, but now that history has worked itself out and Messiah came, after 70 A.D. as well, all right? The Noahic Covenant sets those parameters. So all of the natural realm is part of the Noahic Covenant, or the principles that govern the natural realm. That's an unconditional covenant that includes all of mankind and even the natural realm. Now, the essence of it, God says he's not going to bring another flood, but in order to keep a flood... He has to control all of the, not only astrophysical bodies, but all of the geophysical, geophysical elements as well. For the God who will call him. Right. No problem. Just one example of that is if the moon were, were only a small percentage closer to this, to the earth, remember the tides are controlled by the moon, those tides would overtake all of the continents. And there'd be a flood, obviously. Okay? So God is controlling all, every electron in the universe based on the Noahic covenant. And then there's the very important Abrahamic covenant, and I put it like an umbrella because there's several other covenants that follow that are just the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. 
In fact, the Abrahamic Covenant sets the parameters for all of the rest of world history. And the rest of world history, God is going to regulate all of the nations in relationship to how they deal with the nation of Israel. Those that bless Israel will be blessed. Those that curse Israel, they're going to last only a short time and they will be cursed. Okay, They may prosper for a short time, but they will eventually be destroyed. So this is another unconditional covenant, one that does not depend on what Abraham does or any of his descendants. It's unconditional in that God is going to carry every aspect of it out. Now, Abraham and his descendants can miss out on some of the blessings that are available, like being in the land, but in terms of God eventually and ultimately fulfilling every aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, it's unconditional and only dependent on God. Replacement theology says Yes. Yep. Replacement theology, false doctrine. Now, there's three major stipulations to the Abrahamic covenant. God promises Abraham a seed. It's kind of the literal King James description there. The idea is Abraham is going to have descendants that will become a nation. Descendants that eventuate in God's people. God has rejected the world system, the nations. This is Tower of Babel. And he is bringing about his own nation. It's going to be a counterculture to all the other nations. There's also land. Very, very important. Literal land. And in chapter 15, we have the extent of it from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates River. So it includes today lots of Iraq, lots of all of Lebanon, all of Syria, all of Jordan, parts of Egypt. Okay, Israel has never occupied the full extent of the land, but the land is theirs. That's a privilege. That no other nation has. It also includes a blessing. And it has different aspects to that blessing. Well, God, first of all, is going to bless Abraham and bless his descendants. And they will be a blessing to the world. That's why I say the Abrahamic covenant is the parameter for all of world history, the rest of world history. In that we have the major blessings of even the church come from Israel. Two of the most outstanding of those blessings are the scriptures. All of the scriptures are written by the Jews, come from the nation of Israel, the descendants. A case could even made, even of Luke. Luke would be the only exception, but he probably has Jewish blood. So all of revelation comes through the nation of Israel. The whole world is blessed by God's word. The ultimate blessing is Messiah comes through the nation of Israel. Do you know that Jesus was a Jew? (laughs) Well, you do, but you do, but some people don't. Messiah, salvation, God's blessing come through the nation of Israel. That's stipulated in the Abrahamic covenant, and it's through Abraham. In fact, what does the Gospel of Matthew start with? Jesus, the son of whom? Abraham. And there's only two, David, Abraham and David. Messiah comes through Abraham. So he's the seed. In fact, he's the seed of the woman that will 
ultimately crush the head of the serpent. So these are the three aspects of it. And those are so important that uh, we also have a Mosaic covenant, which is primarily in the book of Exodus, but also Deuteronomy is a restatement, you might say, of the law, second law, Deuteronomy. And within Deuteronomy, we have what we might describe as a land covenant. Some people call it a Palestinian covenant. I'm kind of leaning more towards calling it a land covenant just because of the problems that we have with the word Palestine nowadays. But the land covenant, Deuteronomy 28 and 30, basically, specifies more specifically the land and the conditions for staying in the land. So there are some conditions for experiencing the blessings of the land. In fact, Deuteronomy predicts ahead of time that Israel will depart from the Lord and God will discipline them and he will exile them. All of this is predicted ahead of time in Deuteronomy. It's also predicted ahead of time in Leviticus 26. Yeah, it's reminded, yeah. This is, Deuteronomy is written before they're a nation. They're in the wilderness. They're simply a people. They will become a nation when they have a common constitution. That's the Mosaic law. It is conditional. It is conditional. And the relationship to the land is conditional as well. Doesn't mean they don't have the land or they don't have ownership, but they don't have the blessings of the land when they are disobedient and idolatrous. They miss right occupation. So that covenant deals with the land specifically. There's also the Davidic covenant that specifies the descendants or the seed. There's going to be a line of kings, godly kings or kings in the line that ultimately end in the king of kings and lord of lords. That's the Davidic covenant. These are with Israel. Maddie, it's unconditional as well. And we have another covenant. Anyone know the name of that one? It has to be associated with the blessings. And that's a new covenant. And if you read it in Jeremiah, and if you read it in Hebrews, it's to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Those are the parties to the new covenant, not the church. Now the question is, does the church benefit? And there's different views on that. I don't want to get into the details of that at this point. The point we're making, these are the covenants of the Bible. They belong to Israel. One of the privileges. All of these covenants not only deal with the nation of Israel, but specify future things that have not been fulfilled yet with the nation of Israel. For example, the land. They have never fully occupied the land. They have not experienced the new covenant. They've experienced the extent of the Davidic covenant in that it resulted in the Messiah, but the work of Messiah and the ministry of Messiah, some of it that is predicted in the Davidic covenant, has not been fulfilled yet. Messiah has not ruled. That's future. So there are aspects to all of these covenants that are yet future and will not be fulfilled until the Lord returns during the millennial kingdom. These covenants will be ultimately and totally fulfilled. So those are the covenants. Hmm? It's unconditional. Mm -hmm. So, Israelites who belong the adoption as sons, one word, 
the glory, the covenants. There's no other nation that has any of these privileges, and I would take it one step further. These belong to Israel today, right now. They're not enjoying them because they rejected their Messiah, but this passage, chapter 11, they will be restored and they will be reunited with their Messiah and enjoy the benefits of these covenants. We also have the giving of the law. Now, this is more in terms of their constitution, you might say. There are at least three things that make up a nation. You have to have a common people. That happened at the Exodus. God brought them together. Common constitution. When did that happen? Sinai. The law is their constitution. It regulates everything. Their whole social life, political life, physical life all the way down to toilets, marriage, all of the issues of society, of of a nation, are regulated by the Mosaic Covenant. In fact, so much detail that you get pretty bogged down in it. The giving of the law. So, stipulations of the law. Now, it's interesting, there's a different word here, but notice the word namas is part of the word uh, namathesia. Is that how you pronounce it? Nomo namathesia. I think it deals with mainly the stipulations or the the details of the law. There's There are a lot of aspects of the law, and I think this word seems to imply or indicate more the stipulations of the law, the, the details. Israel has the details. A lot of those details, Christ fulfilled in terms of the church, we are not under those details. Those belong to Israel, those stipulations. For example, we don't observe the Sabbath. We meet on Sundays. For example, you can eat pork well, and shrimp. We have a rest. We have a rest. But we don't observe it on a Sabbath in... Say that again? Well, we're not even... We're not under it. Yeah, we're not bound by it. So if this belongs to Israel, just like all of the other privileges. And the, the privilege is that it gives lots of guidance into how to live life. The law belongs to Israel. So we have the covenants, we have the legislation, temple service. This is access or fellowship with God. God provided a means by which the nation of Israel could have access So, ultimate and true access belongs to Israel. Now, we participate in that because we have accepted Israel's Messiah. But the Messiah belongs to Israel. So, when we speak of temple service, it includes all of the ritual, it includes the sacrificial system that Christ fulfilled, but it also includes all of those aspects where access to God was involved. It's very detailed in the law. So temple service. I wanted to show you kind of a shot of the temple as it existed, or at least as archaeologists and artists felt like what it looked like. This is what it looked like in uh, Herod's day. This is the Herodian temple, okay, which they call it the second temple because, or actually, no, the second temple is Nehemiah's temple. Yeah, or Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, Ezra. But 
Temple Mount in the first century, this is what Jesus would have seen. And Jesus would have spent time at Temple Mount. In fact, the early church met there on the day of Pentecost. This is the site where Peter explained what was going on on the day of Pentecost, um, Acts chapter 2. In fact, it's believed that some of them may have met under the, the columns there near where the arrow is. But I've got the arrow pointed there because we we were on that site about at that location. The temple obviously is not there today. There's a there's a mosque that desecrates the site basically. This is where it looks like today from from the air. See the arrow there? I put the arrow there to show exactly where this photograph was taken. So we visited all that area as it is and exists today. Just to backtrack here. Remember that spot? That's where that photograph was taken. And it's on that site where the Dome of the Rock is. It's believed it's where the Herodian Temple and the Solomonic Temple existed. And in front of it would be the altar where all the sacrifices were, were offered. The burnt offerings, all of the offerings that would be offered. The whole service, temple service, access. And in Solomon's time, God manifested his, his presence in the building. You didn't go into the structure. No seats in there. Only the priest entered once a year into the Holy of Holies and the presence of God, but you had access. And through the sacrificial system, it's like First John 1, 9. You confess your sins, and your sins are forgiven, and you have fellowship that you have to do continually as you sin. The, the Jews offered sacrifice to restore fellowship with God. And this took place in the first century in those areas. And just to kind of bring it home to those of you that were there, so we would have been about where the D is on the Herod's temple. Notice considerably larger. It's kind of out of scale because it's, it's, uh, everything is huge. This is not a normal door. This is the, I can't remember how many cubits high. Side doors. Those are out of proportion. Those are, so consider most doors are about a six or seven, well, a seven foot door. This is those side doors are bigger than your seven. Probably foot. 15 foot tall and, yeah. Totally out of proportion. The columns, uh, I can't remember the estimates. 40 foot tall, I think. Something like that. Now they're estimated. And the church, it says in one, in Acts chapter two, probably somewhere, maybe in that area there. Okay? So we have the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises. So there's lots of promises besides those contained in the covenants. Now the covenants are legal documents, legal promises, you might say, that have the force of law and the law of God. But there's all kinds of other promises as well. Promises are like... um well, they're extensions, yeah, the, right. Well, a lot of them would include uh, prophecy. In other words, prophetic word concerning details of the outworking of history. But it would include, it, it's kind of broad, and it would include stipulations of covenants as well, 
several things. These belong to Israel. These are the privileges. Right, like Jeremiah, like everything like to quote, and I mm-hmm. just see here, um, that uh, God promises his people uh, at the end of 70 years, he's going to come back, right? So he says, I give you, I have plans for you. And yes. And good plans. Right. And they're plans for hope in the future, and it's specific during. To Israel. To Israel coming back to land yeah. to occupy it, and yet we lift it so conveniently and just like indiscriminately apply it right. to the church or whatever, to individuals. It's not like God's worth that specific promise needs to be understood in its context. In its context. Yes. Thank you, Finrod. Yes, you're, you're very welcome. And we don't like you being driven crazy. Well, anymore. and it does, it's easy to do, so <laughs> I'm close to crazy. <laughs> well, you're not the only one. So promises, ultimate security. Israel has ultimate security, and that includes Israel restoration. Okay? Based on promise, not salvation. Well, based on both. Well, the new covenant basically spells out their restoration. True. I'm just talking about salvation, not um, like a physical salvation, but a believer's salvation. Right. Well, in Israel, it'll be both. And, well, but in... Because in the tribulation, they will be on the verge of annihilation. It will be a physical and spiritual restoration. I'm looking at Romans 4, verse 13 through 17, just talking about Abraham's declaration of righteousness was based on the promise, Mm -hmm. and that was before the Abrahamic covenant. Right. It was based on the fact that Abraham was God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Yes. Also, where... When was this given? Was he circumcised or uncircumcised at that point? Mm-hmm. Uncircumcised. And he says, it's by faith, in order that it may be accordance with grace. Saying it precedes the law. Yeah, precedes the law. But, still, there's lot, lots of promises, lots, and the covenants. The point Paul is making in this passage, these belong to Israel. And it's because of these great privileges that they have, that Paul aches inside and mourns that his fellow Jewish brethren, you might say, or brothers, are really missing out. And he's not stating it here, but historically we know in a few years uh, they will be wiped out as a, as a generation even. And But in terms of the broader Israel, they will be restored. And then nine five, we have significant relationships. These also belong to Israel, where it speaks of whose are the fathers. Whose are the fathers, men? Go back to innovation that in terms of the promises and the covenants, Israel will be stored spiritually first. They'll receive their Messiah, and then from that flows physical nation in terms of the land. The, the kingdom, all of those things. Does that? Um, I think to some extent they're beginning even since 1948 in terms of the land. Yeah, but it's not. It's not like, the, no, I, it's not, the, it's not the full extent. Yeah, the full, the full extent yeah. will await the second coming. So. Well, they've incrementally added. Golan Heights was a part of 48. And right. They also added some south 
but they gave it back, I think, right, to Saudi Arabia, right? Right. Um, uh, yeah. Egypt. So, yeah. Egypt, I mean, sorry. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, they might incrementally be adding. Yeah, I see, I see them in the land today as a, the first stage of Ezekiel 37. The spiritual aspect won't take place till the, sec- the uh, tribulation period. Yeah, but you've got to say that. Okay, if, if it's a jumping... <laughs> okay. It's the beginnings. Well, it's, it's, it's just the beginnings. It's the itty-bitty when they first settled the land, too. I mean, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, whose are the fathers? Could include Abraham. He spends a lot of time in the book of Romans, and we won't look these up. 4.1, 4.11 through 17. In fact, Maddie just read part of chapter 4. And then we're going to see more in chapter 9 when we get to verses 6 and 7. Isaac, we have Isaac also going to be the focus in the next passage there, 6 through 9. So it could include Abraham, could include Isaac. Most certainly includes Abraham and probably Isaac and Jacob. Jacob, again in chapter 9, and also later in the chapter 11 to 13. Could even include Moses. He's referenced also in chapter 9. David is considered in some way a father, at least of the kingdom. David's mentioned chapter 4, 6 through 8. General, in this context, just to remind his fellow Jews of their heritage and their background, and how God dealt with all of these individuals, brought them into a relationship with himself. And then from whom is the Christ? And let's conclude with with this. Let me expand it a little bit. And the word Christ, you know what that means, right? It's not Jesus' last name. The anointed one, it's the, it comes from the Hebrew word. Messiah comes from the Hebrew word, Mashiach, which is the anointed one who is the Messiah. That's what Christ means. We kind of say it kind of almost flippantly and don't realize the the implications. But in this context, I think Paul is emphasizing Messiah belongs to you. It's Messiah that you have overlooked. And yet Messiah comes from Israel. From whom is the Christ? So Messiah, Christas equals Messiah. Three times we have it in verse 1. So he's kind of Kind of emphasizing their loss. Basically, this is why this why he's mourning. He mentions it in verse one, verse three, and now in verse five. And notice this is a this is a very important passage, one of the clearest passages in all of the New Testament on the humanity and deity of Christ together. Messiah according to the flesh. This should remind the Jews: virgin birth, life of Christ. Temptation, struggle, ultimately death, death on a cross, according to the flesh. But notice the next part there as well. So, just add here, humanity. He's a Jew, according to the flesh. And then here, who is over all, and I think this comma is very important. There's a... I think the Revised Standard Version and those that follow the Revised Standard Version put a period there. Remember I've already mentioned in the original manuscripts there are no, there's no punctuation. Now the UBS text that most of us use, the Greek text, they insert punctuation and there's debate on some places. 
there's a little bit of a debate here, and they put a period there to kind of separate Christ from God. And I think a little theology probably went into the decision to do that. I think it's better to view this, the who, and, and it rearrange, they rearrange the text also. But I think the who, who does the who refer to? Messiah. If you put the comma there, it would refer to Christ. So who is what? He's over all, but not only that, but what is he? Who is he? This is one of the clearest passages on the deity of Christ. Who is God? It's not stated that clearly in very many passages anywhere in the New Testament, but you see it right here. Now, he is sovereign. In other words, he is the one that controls all of world history. He is the sovereign one. And he is above all because of resurrection and ascension and is seated at the right hand. He is over all and he is God himself. And then Paul concludes with blessed forever. Kind of a doxology. The point being is the God blessed forever is Jesus Christ. The controversy is right here. Well, don't miss the main point though. What we have here is a very clear statement of not only humanity in that Jesus came in the flesh as a human being with Jewish lineage in the lines of the fathers, but he also is deity, Theos, God himself. And he's sovereign over all. Jesus is the sovereign. And not only that, but we have worship. I think we, it concludes with Jesus is blessed forever. Amen. Truth. <laughs> truly, truly, or truth. Amen. And I think Paul closes this little introduction with, with worship. And Israel's rejection, bottom line, I think what Paul is saying here is when the nation of Israel rejected Jesus, they rejected their Messiah. And they rejected their Messiah, who is not only fully human, but also fully God. Make sense? And we can worship the Lord Jesus Christ because he is God. He's not He's not an angelic creature. He's not only totally and fully human, but he's God as well. It's a good place to close. Closing a thought, to the extent one receives privileges, in this context, Israel, to that extent, there's responsibility that follows. And in terms of Israel, responding to the Messiah. And we have the privilege of entering into tremendous privilege as well. We have the gospel that the nation of Israel needs today. Does anyone want to close for us? Going once. <laughs> Craig. Father God, thank you for uh, the blessing that you have given us. Um, in this country, Lord, um, we pray that uh, we will help those and others as well. We just want to freshly uh, reach out for those hurting and in, in, in illness right now with the COVID-19, the coronavirus, Lord, that you would just uh, comfort them through us, Lord, that you would use your body, show your hands and your feet. We just uh, want to thank you for sending to us, for praying, uh, for the, the wisdom that you have given him to send you through. He says that you will be with us now. Watch over us and keep us safe. We pray. Amen.